lipstick gets so dirty After all these years, baby, it's still hurting Who's gonna say my woman is not a me? You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You never know how you'll react in an emergency. We have been hearing about heroic efforts by so many people in news stories over the past month and a half. And today we highlight one story about a resident who saved homes from going up in flames and saved lives. HPR reporter Catherine Kluwit-Pactel joins us today. Hi, Catherine. Good morning. Yeah, so tell us about this gentleman uh, who you are highlighting today. His name is Sean Sarabe. He was born and raised in Lahaina, and the night of the fires, you know, everyone was trying to evacuate the town, run for their lives, and he stayed to fight the fire all night long. After his own home burned, he and a handful of friends did all they could to help try and save others. His efforts did save houses and lives. Out of five structures where we was at, we saved two. We had four water hoses. Was fighting this fire with, with garden hose, two buckets, and eight 16 ounce the kind, empty bottle of water. We kept on filling up and just drawing water all around on all these embers and saving this house. We took rope from that house, and uh, whoever house that is, don't worry, I give you back $15. I know how much it costs, $15 worth of rope. <laughs> so we, hey, we went. Tie rope to trees, move them out of our way. Someone break, we had to retie. All kind, we was going through our survival mode just for get out. And when we finally got out, you know, and saved 17 lives and one three month baby. After that long, nearly 24 hours of fighting, nonstop, dehydrated, everything. Yeah, you know, I went and looked at some of the video that he posted online and it's just, oh my gosh, you know, he and those gentlemen that helped him, bless their hearts. Yeah, just staying there and scrapping, as he says, um, fighting the fire with whatever they had at the time. He said he was near the United Methodist Church in Lahaina. He knew where the fire hoses were, and he just got to work, and they tried to, you know, save whatever they could, wet the grass down, spray the houses, and um, save some folks in the process. So, uh, you know, so many heroes coming out of this. Ian and his family were blocked by the MPD road barricades as they were trying to leave Lahaina, but he doesn't point fingers. He says, though, he doesn't agree with everything that happened that night. He says he he does understand um, there were reasons behind it. He praises the Maui Fire Department for their work. And during this whole process, he lost contact with his family and didn't know if they were alive. My family thought I was gone. I never reunite with them got word with them till about four o'clock. So 24 hours and every single one of my family, we lost contact for 24 hours. Every single one, when they knew where I was last and they were saying, knowing the type of person I am, that I was gonna stay and fight, they knew I would have not left. They already thought I was gone. One of the firemen, which is my brother-in-law, saw me on Front Street and they was like, who the heck is this guy? Cause you know what I mean, this is like, Early in the morning, this whole town is to the ground, smoking. I never know that was my brother. And then uh, he ran up to me, started crying, and I just, you know, I never asked a question yet. And when I finally asked the question, I was like, tell me the girls and the family okay? And he said, they're all good. They stay home or quiet. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I just, I'm tearing up, you know, thinking of the uncertainty of it all, right? Not knowing how your loved ones are. Yes, and, and they didn't know, you know, they like he said, they thought that he hadn't made it knowing where he was and, again, knowing that he would stay there and, and do his best to save what he could. It's, it's really, um, yeah, it's, it's heart-wrenching to think about. That afternoon after the fire, he headed towards Leili, which is <clears throat> the homestead community right outside of Lahaina, and there he found his family um, with, you know, a happy reuniting with those that he you know he wasn't sure made it and there he you know the fight wasn't over he found that 
um, the grass was on fire and it was spreading to some of the homes that had been saved, uh, that had survived in that area. And so he and his friends got to work again, used garden hoses and um, saved homes in the Le'ali'i community as well, helping um, until the fire department could come back. He said they were bouncing all over the place. Of course, the Kula fires, the Lahaina fires were still going. And uh, so they were able to contain it um, while the fire department was, was off doing, handling other things. And now more than a month later, Sarabe says he still has a lot of questions. Nobody has gave us, the community, the people of Lahaina, real legit answers. My voice is everybody's voice and everybody's voice is my voice because we all want the same thing, an answer of these types of questions such as how long more till we can go into our properties? How long more till we build up? How long more can we stay at this hotel before we get kicked out? How long more do we have until we got to actually start paying for mortgage, which is now a piece of dirt, not a house? How long more can I stay here? I go on Sunset View every day where I'm staying at. How long more can I see that? So the life of the Lahaina community is one big question mark. Yes, it is indeed. Uh, yeah, but uh, kudos for him to, you know, continuing to fight those fires. For sure, and, and pushing through all the uncertainty. I know a lot of folks are, you know, just moving away, and he said he's staying right where he is. Right now he is staying in Le'ali'i at someone's home there, and as he said, he doesn't know how much longer he's going to be staying there. Uh, he also said that his mortgage got deferred um, in August and September, but he was told that he has to go ahead and, and start paying mortgage again on his three homes starting next month. He owns three properties his own home, as well as two houses that he rented to local tenants. And they're all, of course, in ashes. But he's, you know, he's been told that he has to start paying mortgage again on those, which is just kind of hard to believe. Um, he was also denied twice uh, his Red Cross application. And he said a lot of folks went through the same thing where they were denied and they ended up just giving up uh, with their applications because the process was, you know, too, <laughs> just too involved. He said he answered all the questions that they had, and he doesn't know why they, why he got denied, but he said finally on the third application he, he was accepted. And, you know, he, he recognizes this is just a, a phase of waiting. You know, phase one of recovery is, is underway, and um, phase two will be coming, you know, looking at reentering and, and rebuilding uh, all of those things. He said for rebuilding, he he hopes to see Lahaina keep more of its plantation Hawaiian-style roots that his dad grew up in. He remembers just being, uh, you know, being raised in, in more of an older style, and he said he wants to know that his kids will be able to live in a town like he remembers when it's rebuilt. Yeah, we have lots of hopes for the future, uh, but certainly kudos uh, to him and his friends for helping to save those homes and helping to save those lives. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thank you. That was HPR's Catherine Cluett-Pactel. You can read more of her Maui County stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Now on view is Salman Tour, No Ordinary Love, telling stories of family life, queer desire, and immigrant experience. HonoluluMuseum.org. Today on The Daily, as Ukraine's counteroffensive grinds on, it's increasingly turning to a secret drone program that's hitting targets deep inside Russian territory. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. 
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally based customer care team committed to problem solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. This weekend, board members of Unite Here Local 5, which represents workers in the hospitality and healthcare industry, traveled to Maui to meet with members. Earlier in the week, it had met with ILWU, the International Longshoremen and Warehousemen's Union. The two labor groups represent the bulk of the hotel workers there on that island. We talked to Kate Watanabe, who earlier this spring took over the union as financial secretary and treasurer of the union, a position previously held by longtime labor leader Eric Gill. We're told the two essentially traded places. Watanabe says uh, the union has more than 300 members who work with Kaiser and hotels on Maui's west side. He said there are some 15 retirees who lived in Lahaina, many who lost their homes, and many active members who also lost their homes and are eligible for hardship grants. Here's Watanabe. Our members, for instance, in the hotels are working. Our Kaiser members who worked at the Lahaina Clinic that was entirely burnt have been working, those that want to. I think there's a real concern about what's going to happen in you know, two weeks, four weeks when the federal government just leaves and is no longer staying in some of our hotels and what does the recovery look like. But more importantly, the feedback we've been getting from our members as well as, you know, from other folks that live in the community as well as IOW, I think, shared some similar feedback is the real concern about what is the investment that's going to be made in the long term to make sure that our people can return for those that want to, right? And making sure that they have jobs to go back to is number one. Almost from day one, I think the concern that our members had was related to their employment. Because as they quickly realized that they just lost everything, and some people, it took them three, four, five days a week to figure out whether or not their home was still standing, etc. But for most people that we engaged with right away, a lot of their concern was over their family and their friends' safety. But right after that had to do with concerns related to unemployment because they know, just like every other worker in that community, that if they don't have good jobs to go back to, if they don't have the work to go back to, then their ability to reroute, to rebuild is really up in question, right? So that's been from the very beginning something we've been at the top of our mind. And I think in communication with other, you know, union leaders, so we're trying to figure out how do we keep our members not just talking but organized so that we can translate that organizing potential to be able to collectively push whatever needs we may have. Unemployment, for instance, we got no call. We got no call from anybody in the state. Nobody in the state reached out to our union for support or help or et cetera, et cetera. It's a good thing that we have strong rank and file leaders on the ground that have just picked up and really stepped up their leadership to be able to provide the support that some of our members really need. We have a couple of members at the Sheraton Mali, for instance, who are, who are deaf. So not only do they have to go through that whole ordeal, but questions related to unemployment, their work, you know, all of those things are all factors that we've been having to work through, right? Concerns related to their employment, but also coming up very shortly is going to be questions related to their health care coverage. Because if folks are out of work for an extended period of time, then that puts in jeopardy our ability through our health and welfare fund to cover their eligibility for medical rights. You talked about the Kaiser Clinic burning down. Any yeah. word yet? Does the, the hospital even know where they can set up shop temporarily? Well, you know, Kaiser mobilized pretty quickly and, as you know, set up those mobile health clinics. I think there are two additional mobile trucks that have been shipped from Northern California that have since arrived on Maui. And so they've been going from hub to hub, sort of setting up these remote sites to provide care. I haven't heard anything directly in terms of definitive plans terms of what's going to happen for the rebuild of the, the clinic itself on a more permanent basis. I think that's shifting and we're hoping to engage with Kaiser shortly. It may be too soon for them to even know what they're going to do. But I imagine, though, it must be pretty tough if you not only lost your home, but maybe if your business burned down, right? Your employer's facility burned down. You know, what do you do next? 
Yeah. I mean, it's a good thing that Kaiser has a bunch of you know facilities and has had the infrastructure to be able to place workers at their Lahaina clinic. So that's been a good thing. And the mobile units have been helpful to provide care for those subscribers of Kaiser, right? And Kaiser was providing prescription drugs to even non-Kaiser drivers. And I remember that lost everything. We're showing up to work. I and mean, it's just amazing the resiliency that people have demonstrated through this crisis. But the long term is beginning to become more worrisome, not just in terms of the future of tourism, but, you know, what are we collectively doing as a community? And so we're trying to think through this as one organization. Like what, are, what can we, what should we be doing? Well, how do we assist people who've lost everything that now have to communicate with their mortgage lenders and figure out how they remediate the land to it up, to be able to rebuild if they want to rebuild. But the other thing, Catherine, is that, as you know, the devastating thing is, yes, Lahaina has all this historical and cultural significance, right? You know, with plantation, but well before that as the capital for the Hawaiian Kingdom. But, you know, also very devastating that this is a very much a working class neighborhood and community. So we are, you know, hearing stories of folks who lost homes, but it's not just a home that's provided for one one family, you know, three or five families in one home. And people have had to pull together their money to be able to purchase those homes or rent a home. And many folks work more than one job, work in the hotels or Kaiser or airport, but they do side business, cleaning yards, cleaning homes. Those are all not necessarily on the books per se, but they are important for providing for folks livelihood. And how do they get support? Well, I you think know, when you look at the history of labor, right? I mean, out of plantation, we had all these workers, laborers come in from so many different countries. And when sugar closed down, they went to the tourist industry or they went to healthcare, And they're still being impacted today. Absolutely. You know, there are some members we know that have left. We've heard of a few folks that have just moved, picked up and left. I think one went to Vegas it's friends, family staying there, but just like left with no plans of returning. And so I think we've seen a lot of relief. But there's plenty of frustration amongst the working people in Lahaina, in particular amongst our members, for sure. We were just there on Saturday, Catherine. We had our executive board meeting on property. And after our board meeting, we did a meet and greet so that the rest of our Local 5 leadership could hear from our members. And, you know, people have been really frustrated with with the whole situation. And, you know, from their perspective, the lack of real leadership when it comes to making sure that people get the relief that they really need. And part of what we're hearing is that people need a sense of hope. Uh, You know, the people that want to go back, want to rebuild, they've had to deal with all kinds of challenges that have been well documented, right? Not being able to access their home, standing in line for a long time, having to go to another line, standing in line to talk to FEMA, and then FEMA just points you to the Red Cross, or you go to wait in line to with FEMA asking for all this paperwork, all kinds of stories of people you know, not being friendly to our folks, all, all kinds of stories that we've been hearing. And we know that the federal government is doing what they can, but we can see that there are resources pouring into our community. There seems to be a real disconnect when it comes to those resources really affecting people's morale and lives. That may be the case, but people are really down and out, and I think we got to figure out a way to do more to be able to give people a real sense of hope so that they can really figure out what their next step is going to be. Even if you have temporary housing, having to move and pick up is not, is traumatic in and of itself for folks right, who've lost right. everything or fled from the fire. They don't know how long they're going to be there. You know, one of the things we're hoping to do is to work closely with LW so we can really figure out how we collectively, from the hospitality worker side, right? Because between the two unions, I think we cover majority of those hospitality workers, right, on that coast that have been affected. But, you know, the long-term housing question is going to be a big, big deal. And I think that's something, you know, we we launched our hardship fund. Mm-hmm. We've been able to give direct relief to people who lost their homes. Our hardship committee, you know, has been raising money. And you know, any, any member who lost a home in Local 5, we've been able to give them $1,000. And that was significant for folks because people waited three weeks and haven't gotten anything. And so wherever we can. But we know yeah. no matter how much money we raise, it's just not enough. So it's, it's all donations. We've got donations from our sisters and, you know, brothers from all across the country, from Vegas, our local in Vegas, and we've donated some. So we've been able to raise, you know, enough money to at least help those directly that lost their homes. But there's so many people who, you know, lost the roof, all kinds of damage. But we're coming to the point, Catherine, where the value of what we might be able to bring to the table, along with other organizations that are directly connected to workers, 
like the RW, it's going to be really valuable for us to figure out how we make sure that we push our government leaders to put forth the right questions to be able to allow our people to come back and rebuild. Because all this relief is important. That was Kate Watanabe, labor leader with Unite Here Local 5, talking about support it is offering its members and the talks it's having with ILWU, which represents the lion's share of hotel workers there on Maui. We're the first ones to stand. We're the first ones to die. We're the first ones in line for that pie in the sky. And we're always the last when the cream is shaved out. Honolulu Civil Beats Chad Blair joins us today for our reality check with a word of warning about welfare fundraising scams. Good morning, Chad. Good morning, Catherine, and thanks for whoever programmed that tune there. That was great. (laughs) (laughs) Well, gosh, so uh, you've got uh, uh, some concern over just the huge amounts of money that, that people are fundraising out there as a result of these fires. Right, and specifically whether that money is gonna go directly to the victims. It's, this is two stories that I'm gonna tell you about today, both from Alan and Q, and I'm gonna start with the second story today because that just broke. Uh, Scott Psyche, the House Speaker, has asked uh, Governor Green to issue an emergency proclamation that would specifically prohibit uh, any uh, criminal fraudulent fundraising activity uh, the governor's office is said to be reviewing that letter from Psyche. The other part of Psyche's request was to Governor Green's Attorney General, Ann Lopez, asking to set up an, some sort of auditing process to make sure that those funds that are raised for Maui um, actually go directly to the victims. Uh, the Attorney General, by the way, has at least two times that I know of previously issued warnings uh, about you know, possible fraudulent um, fundraising efforts. She had said something about robocalls and this and that. The concern here, of course, is is whether if you give that money to a group uh, that it says it's raising money for Lahaina, does the money actually go there or is it being used for other purposes? And from the speaker's point of view, he's worried that, you know, if there's fraud involved, if that money's not going where it's going to, that could really put a chilling effect. Those are his words, a chilling effect on other organizations that are doing legitimate charitable fundraising yes and you know i believe even the fbi put out a word of warning so lots of law enforcement folks you know have seen this before right the good intentions they they want to help people uh but sometimes these agencies may um, ask for a really large let's say administrative cut you know uh, to run the program and and i know you know in some circles that's really frowned on but uh yeah lots of potential for abuse well and here's the second part which is really the first part which in many ways uh, in part, um, triggered uh, what's going on here. And this is a story Alan had up yesterday, and it involves um, a super PAC called Our Hawaii Action. It's run by uh, some su- progressive groups, including Kaniela Ng, he's the former state lawmaker, ran for Congress uh, from Maui, and Evan Weber, he's uh, an activist, very involved politically. Uh, well, there's two things that they set up. One is this super PAC, Our Hawaii Action, which gives money to candidates that presumably share their progressive views. But the other thing is they also set up what's known as the Maui Community Power Recovery Fund, Maui Community uh, Recovery Fund, which uh, allows you to give money to help people trying to recover from Lahaina. Well, here's the here's the catch, here's the trick. If you go to that Maui Community Power Recovery Fund, there's actually a link that takes you to the super PAC. And so it has the appearance, at least to critics, that how do you know where your money's going? Is it going to the to the victims or is it going to support political candidates? We can tell you that Weber and Ng feel that they're being perfectly upfront. It's described as a hybrid pack, but others just saying, wait a minute, this, this could really confuse people. And our reporter has talked to some folks and saying, this kind of at least raises the questions on whether you're doing something that might might deceive people in terms of how your money is being used. Yeah, and the speaker uh, said that that story uh, kind of uh, was part of what he was hearing. Well, he, he did say he knew that. about the story, but this was the first news story, Civil Beats piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he had heard anecdotally of some other concerns. So it wasn't just Alan's story, but certainly that, that is part of this uh, situation. Uh, one of the people that uh, Alan talked to is Hugh Jones. Uh, he used to work for the Attorney General's office locally. Yes. He was in the tax, you remember Hugh mm-hmm. Jones? Yeah, he was in the tax and charities division. 
Uh, he's now kind of a watchdog watching where money goes. And he's saying, you could be confusing people. This is really a concern here. Uh, are you being clear where that money will be going? Allen did talk to the Campaign Spending Commission. They said they're aware of the activities of Ng and Weber. Uh, didn't have any comment beyond that. But he also talked to the current AG office in charge of taxes and charities. And they said they are aware of this and they are looking into it to make sure everything is above board or not. By the way, Connie Ng, part of the problem is he has his own, shall we say, uh, checkered past when it comes to campaign fundraising. He's been penalized a couple of times. And that, you know, it's natural for someone to raise questions and say, well, wh why are you doing this now, given what you're involved in? But again, both Ng and Weber have said they're completely above board. We'll see how this uh, pans out. Yeah. So we just want to make sure things are on the up and up. And uh, yeah, you don't want to have to worry about fine print. <laughs> no, expect to follow to this story I, from Alan. Thank okay. you. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Chad. That was uh, uh, Honolulu Civil Beats' Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read Alan's story on, uh, stories online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Merriman's Restaurants on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai. Details and reservations at merrimanshawaii.com. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. Mahalo to Hawaii Island Community Health Center and Resource Suites. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, with ideas to help reduce water waste during these hot, dry months, such as installing a weather-based irrigation controller. More at boardofwatersupply.com. Hawaii is ranked 39th among the states for death by suicide. It's the second leading cause of death for those ages 10 to 34. And this month, the spotlight is on prevention. The Conversations Lillian Song sat down with Amanda Martinez with Mental Health America of Hawaii to talk about a series of workshops and events promoting mental resilience. Someone does die by suicide about every other day here in Hawaii, so we know it's very present and happening in our communities. So we need to be able to talk about it and, and educate ourselves on kind of what to look out for you know, as far as warning signs, but also to be able to identify different resources that are out there if we ourselves or someone that we love and care about may be struggling. What are signs to be mindful of or signs that we may overlook, so to be more conscious of? Yeah, there's a, a whole bunch of different kinds of signs, and I think it is also individualized, right? Every person is different, so there's kind of general things that we want to look out for. You know, phrases that people may say, they may talk about kind of not wanting to be around anymore, or they can't really take things any longer, or behaviorally, we may see changes in patterns like sleep patterns, eating patterns, um, changes in mood or other habits as well. Now we, in our trainings, we stress the importance of listening with our entire bodies. So listening not just with our ears, the things that people are saying, but listening with our eyes. So we're being observant, right, to those changes in patterns and behaviors, but also listening with our hearts and with our stomachs, right? If someone does something or says something that just doesn't quite sit right, that we listen to that instinct and we start to ask more questions or try to gather more information on how we can help support that person. Hmm. To listen with your entire body. Does it take people who are empathetic, though, to maybe pick up on the signals? Not necessarily. I think anyone has the ability to listen, but it does take some work, even if you feel like you are a good listener, right? It's more than just sitting there and letting someone talk at you, but it's kind of listening, right? To your own body language signs, being observant of other people's body language, our nonverbal communication is actually what people take away the most, right, from our interactions with each other. So just being aware also of those nonverbal cues when we talk, yeah. The topic of mental health. Different generations 
react and respond to it differently. I come from a generation where it was something we don't really talk of openly. I don't know if it was shame. I'm not sure what it was. Maybe being in an Asian family, I don't know why we never seem to connect with emotion mm -hmm. openly. It's always like really repressed. But then when I see like my friend's kids, where they are very open about their feelings, the fact that, oh, I need to go see my therapist. Mm -hmm. This was something back in the day where I feel like nobody ever said, I have to go see my therapist. Yep. <laughs> so it is, it's a positive thing in our society. The way we see mental health is changing. Yeah, there's, there's definitely been a shift, I think, especially over the past few years, and especially amongst our younger generations. Stigma is still very much associated with mental health. You know, um, different cultures, different geographic locations all across the board has different kind of viewpoints when it comes to mental health. So it's really encouraging for us to see the younger generations want to have conversations, right? Open and honest conversations, even when it's uncomfortable, when it's tough to talk about how we feel, and even tough to admit when we're struggling sometimes, but being willing and open to reach out for that help and to connect to those resources, I think um, is really inspiring for us as adults to see, and hopefully we can keep that momentum going. So that trajectory that we're taking, like you said, that stigma being reduced, mm -hmm. that's a good thing. Okay. Well, so resources, that's also very helpful for us that we can access. Yeah, there's tons of resources. If you go to our website, which is just mentalhealthhawaii.org with Hawaii spelled out, um, there's a ton of online resources you can find on there. We also have our noshamegethelp.org campaign. Um, so, you know, more information about what kind of warning signs to look out for. And what's really great about it, too, is it links you to specific crisis resources. So if someone is struggling with thoughts of suicide or experiencing a mental health related crisis, they can call um, Hawaii Cares, which is kind of our local um, crisis line here in the state of Hawaii. There's also 988, so the National Suicide and Crisis Line. There's a crisis text line. There's a, a chat line as well. So a lot of different ways to be able to connect to those crisis resources. Mm -hmm. To have these resources at hand, 988, something very easy to remember. And I'm sure in that moment of crisis, something that would be very helpful to have on hand when you're trying to deal with that situation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think sometimes, especially when you're in the moment, it's high stress, right? High anxiety, especially if it's someone that you care about. It's mm -hmm. an extremely scary situation to be in. So knowing that you have a number that you can call or text or a place where you can hop on chat real quick and, and get that support, not just for the person you're trying to help, but for yourself as well. Like, what kind of questions should I ask or who can I call to come meet us so we can keep this person safe? And that's ultimately always our number one goal, right, is safety. We also offer a whole suite of wellness trainings, resilience trainings, suicide prevention trainings. So if you just on your own in general want to learn a little bit more about mental health, um, you can sign up for things like our trainings or mental health first aid. Just kind of build those skills beforehand, right? We call that prevention work. So if we can learn it now, then hopefully down the road, if there comes a time where we have to use it, then we have stuff to pull from. Mm. And for the month of September, Mental Health America of Hawaii has laid out a calendar of wellness and resilience classes open to the public online. Just walk me through what is available for this month. Yeah, we got a couple great ones coming up. On September 22nd, we are going to learn two coping skills. One is grounding and the other one is visualization. So grounding is one of my favorites to kind of learn and utilize because when it seems like life is running away from us and we need to get control over it again, it's really helpful to engage with our senses and kind of reconnect with our bodies, right, to come back to the present moment, especially after like a, a traumatic event, for example, in the immediate after where someone is so overwhelmed, right, doesn't even quite know what's happening. Folks turn to grounding exercises to kind of bring you back to the present really quick. So it's like, name five things that you see, right? Four things that you smell, three things that you can touch. And, you know, so kind of going through each sense one at a time and grounding yourself and connecting back into your body. Oh, I see. Very straightforward, very simple. So is visualization part of the grounding? It's different. It's a different coping skill. What yeah. Coping so a little skills? less engaging with the senses, but using a little bit of your imagination to um, is it then like a positive way of thinking? You're saying, I see myself doing this? Is that yeah, what visualization is? that could be is? part of it. There's okay. different like actual exercise oh, okay, even okay. within that visualization field. And we can learn how to do that. 
On September 26, we'll do a fun, easy, quick activity by creating a music mood playlist. So it's a chance to, you know, intentionally sit down and practice gratitude and practice a little bit of mindfulness. And music has a really creative way, I think, of influencing how we feel, Mm -hmm. right? Influencing our emotions. So to kind of sit down and create a mood playlist to help us connect with our emotions, maybe even change the way we feel with music that we enjoy. And then we also, on September 29th, have a neurographic art activity. So another really cool activity we're going to be doing just to help kind of express ourselves a little bit more creatively while also practicing self-care. So specifically what this activity does is it helps to transform like whatever challenge or struggle or any chaos we may be experiencing in our own lives and taking the opportunity to turn that into something more peaceful or calming or maybe even a little bit more beautiful through a quick doodle kind of drawing coloring activity. And how do people who attend, how are they engaging with each other, with you? Yeah, all of our trainings are all offered through Zoom for free online, so you can hop on. They're typically in webinar format, so don't worry about your camera being turned on or like your mic being unmuted. You're simply going to be watching me or my coworkers at Mental Health America Hawaii kind of go through all of these exercises, and you can participate as you feel comfortable. We keep our eye on the chat box. You can throw in questions. You can throw in suggestions and comments of any of the discussions that we have. And how long are the sessions? Um, No more than an hour. Okay. So it is spaced out for the next few weeks in September. It's ongoing. And what is that message you really want us to take away as we are talking about this? Well, you know, I think everyone knows that the past few years have been filled with such complex experiences surrounding grief and illness and natural disasters, but also recovery. And and during this month, even though we're raising awareness about suicide prevention, it really is a year-round thing. And one of the first steps when it comes to suicide prevention is actually taking the time to take care of our mental health and encouraging other people to do the same. And the key really is making the time for it, even if that's just five minutes out of your day, a couple times a day, if you can find one of these small activities to do on a regular basis, then that's you taking care of yourself. And the more that we can do that, the more resilient we become and the better we are able to show up where we need to show up in our life when it comes to jobs, when it comes to uh, personal relationships, when it comes to just existing as a human being, right? We'll feel better prepared to just in general to be able to get through our day. Right. So Amanda, you got your undergrad and master's in public health. And so what started you on this trajectory? It's always been, mental health in general has always been something I've been incredibly interested in and really passionate about, but it was never anything that was really discussed when I was younger. So that's what I kind of focused on throughout my schooling. And I kind of got on that path just based off of my own personal struggles with mental health and what I have seen and continue to see with my friends and with my family. And I always told myself I wanted to be the person I needed when I was younger. So just educating myself as much as I can. I was lucky enough to get an internship with Mental Health America of Hawaii, and I've been there ever since, just doing really great work and having that opportunity to pass on that that education and awareness. That was Amanda Martinez, training program manager for Mental Health America of Hawaii and HPR's Lillian Song. We'll have links to this month's calendar of online classes and events on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, call or text 988. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a Master of Science program in travel industry management. More information online at scheidler.hawaii.edu. 
families are crossing the U.S. border illegally in larger numbers than ever. Their safety and their legal status is more complicated than for individuals making the same crossing alone. Border patrol stations and other facilities are simply not equipped to handle the number of families that are coming. I'm Carol Hills, Families and Migration, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Close your eyes and imagine this. Shakespeare in the Hawaiian language. It's happening Wednesday night at the University of Hawaii's Kennedy Theater with the world premiere of uh, Kaisara. The play imagines an 1890s gathering of Kanaka Maoli intellectuals who explore the intersection between Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and Hawaii's political landscape of the time. It was written by Iasona Caper. Caper grew up in Kaneohe and earned uh, his master's degree in Hawaiian language. He will also be the fifth graduate of the University of Hawaii's master's program in Hawaiian theater this December. The Conversations Russell Subiano sat down with Caper in our studio to talk about the production. It's a adaptation slash translation with a long history going back to William Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. That's where Caesara comes from. It's, it's Caesar, and that play from 400 years ago, a piece of it, of several scenes, are then translated and published in Hawaiian in 1896. And the translator is named James N.K. Keola. And this is printed over a series of weeks in Kanupipakuakoa, so one of the main Hawaiian language newspapers of the time. And so I got to know this as I was going through my Olala Hawaii education and got to see that there's a huge amount of foreign literature that's translated and published in those newspapers all throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. And of course, also working in theater along with my language focus, I got curious, well, what, what's around? Is there Shakespeare or you know any other type of theater plays being translated and published as well? And so this is the best example of Shakespeare being translated historically because it's actually from Shakespeare's play. There's several other examples of adaptations of Shakespeare into kind of short story form that are then translated and published. But this is actually taking the text from 400 years ago, and James Keola goes pretty line by line, direct as he can, to translate these scenes from Julius Caesar. So I've taken that. I've imagined a story where James Keola and people he would have known at the time back in the 1890s here in Honolulu, such as Emma Navahi, Joseph Navahi, Abigail Campbell, John Bush, they're all making an appearance. They're getting together to read this translation. But there's then a twist that the translation gets continued, that some of the other characters have translated more scenes from the play. And that's the translation that I've done to extend the action and keep the story of Julius Caesar going and I wanted to do that because the curious thing about Keola's translation is it ends pretty early in the action of Julius Caesar. It ends with Brutus agreeing to join the conspiracy. And so it doesn't even get to Caesar's assassination, which Caesar's assassination is only about halfway through the play itself. You know, Then there's all the civil war that breaks out, and, and ultimately it's leading towards the death of Brutus, the death of Cassius, the end of these conspirators who have brought down Caesar. So I found it very curious that what's being translated and published back then was just a story that goes, oh, we should all kill Caesar. Let's convince this group to join us. Let's, and we really need Brutus, so we'll convince him. And he agrees, okay, end of the play. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked into the context, Kanupipakuakoa, was very much pro-new regime after the overthrow. By 1896, it's the Republic of Hawaii. And James Keola is part of a political organization that's aimed at bringing Native Hawaiians into politics with this new government, with the Republic. And after finding all this out, doing this research, it became clear to me that, well, this is a deliberate use of Shakespeare to say, yeah, kings and queens are bad, right? Oh. They got Brutus, even Brutus agrees that you gotta kill Caesar. You gotta, you can't have somebody in power in that type of way, right? That's the threat of Caesar is that he's about to become king. But of course, 
the rest of the play, when they actually do it, everything falls apart. And they don't save the Roman Republic in the end. They just pave the way for Augustus Caesar to become the real first emperor. And yeah, the Roman Republic isn't going to make it. So it's a very selective use of Shakespeare to say something that I don't think Shakespeare is saying. I think the agreement is that Shakespeare, among you know, experts, is that Shakespeare isn't really saying anything for either side. And so my play is, on the one hand, putting this translated piece of Julius Caesar on stage, putting Shakespeare in Olala Hawaii for one of the first times, as far as we know. There's no recording of, of this translation or any other translation being performed prior to... I, I had a piece, some scenes from Twelfth Night that I translated and directed last year. But other than that, there's no recorded history of Shakespeare being performed in Olala Hawaii. This is the first I've heard of it. So I'm doing that, but also using this frame story to show these historical figures in Hawaii talking about the translation, talking about the play, helping to make clear to the audience why this play was relevant to Hawaii in the 1890s and how these political issues that go all the way back to ancient Rome are echoing throughout time and I think are still with us today, very much so in our current period, these themes of division and political violence, very relevant to recent headlines as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like James Keola was commenting on the politics of the time using Shakespeare, who was commenting on the politics of the time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's using, particularly I think, use the weight of Shakespeare and use the weight of Roman history to say, oh, we want republics. So the fact that we have a republic now, that's good. Stick with that. In terms of what Keola is doing specifically, I think by selectively editing Shakespeare and doing it in Hawaiian was specifically a, a message that's attached to it saying, yeah, this is for people who, who don't know English that well yet. So we're going to put Shakespeare in Hawaiian for you. And aiming it at the audience who can't read the rest of the play themselves and aren't going to know what actually happens in the end and that the play isn't really an anti-monarchy message. And so I think really setting it up for the readership to see this and go, oh, Shakespeare wrote this thing saying monarchy is bad. Hmm. Oh. I guess I guess that's you know one of these famous sages of the West weighing in on the recent political change in Hawaii. You have Shakespeare, which is a challenge for many people to understand. And then you have Olelo Hawaii. Olelo Hawaii speakers are still a minority in Hawaii. How do you take both of them and make them understandable or make them work. How do you do that? It's definitely a challenging process. We're still in the midst of, and I give huge amount of credit to my actors and the incredible work they're doing trying to get this language memorized and, and ready to perform. So that's, that's ongoing still because, yeah, Shakespeare's English is not easy, even for native speakers of the language. But the nice thing about staging it is that we get all these other elements. It's not just the language. It's it's the body language. It's the intonation. It's the set and the costumes and the lighting and the sound, bringing in all these elements. And then, and I think this, this is true of people watching Shakespeare in the original English too, people are pretty much coming in knowing what happens to Romeo and Juliet, right? right? They know the story because the stories have been around for hundreds of years. And so I, I see that as one way that the audience has a, a leg up. If they don't understand Olelo, they can at least know the story that we're telling in all of the Shakespeare scenes. And then in the frame story, when it's the historical folks in, in the 1890s talking about the play, that I've slipped in some English to kind of make sure the key context is accessible to everybody, the majority of, of folks, at least in the audience. So putting that in there and challenging definitely Shakespeare buffs to come check it out because, hey, you know the story already. You know what's going to happen. You know these scenes. You know the famous lines that are going to be spoken. So come watch and see how much you get. And I think it's going to be a lot. Already I've been getting feedback from people watching rehearsals who are in that kind of position where they recognize, oh, yeah, that's et tu brute, right? That's loose the dogs of war they see the famous lines taking place and they recognize them even though they're in a totally different language. And for the other side, I'm interested in 
the folks who do come in with some fluency in a little Hawaii and perhaps not being Shakespeare buffs, do they find this, and this is more of an open question for me, is do they find the language more accessible having been translated than trying to read the actual Renaissance English? Can you give us a little sample, like the Etu Brute? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that one, that one very simply is Ooi, Ebarutusa. Another one that I have been having fun with is Antony's famous speech, right? Once they get to Caesar's funeral. And that's the, the last scene that I've translated. Ena makamaka, ena Roma, ena Aina, right? Friends, Romans, countrymen. Can you let our listeners know when they can see your production, Kaisara? Yeah, so Kaisara is going to be opening on September 20th and playing through to September 24th. So Wednesday through Sunday, two shows on the Sunday, no show on Saturday because of the football game. And we're in the Earl Ernst Lab Theater. That's part of Kennedy Theater on the UH Manoa campus. Yosona Caper, thanks so much for your time. So cool talking to you about Shakespeare in Olelo, Hawaii, man. Yeah, mahalo, Russell. I really appreciate you having me in here. That was UH theater student uh, Yosona Caper and HBR's Russell Subiono. They were talking about the new Kennedy Theater production, Kaisara, opening Wednesday night. We'll have a link to more information on the Shakespeare in Hawaiian language production on the conversation page of our website later today. discovered that I was an artist. I took a pottery class my last semester in school, and my Mexican jeans came trotting out. They said, where you been? Come on, man, let's get on the wheel. We're back ordered, let's go. Join us for more true stories told live. This week, phone calls and true callings. That's on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Beginning Saturday afternoon at two. Well, that's it. All pal now. No more time. Tomorrow, we plan to talk about climate justice with a Pulitzer Prize nominee. Got some feedback for us? Share your comments or questions about what you heard by calling our talkback line. Call 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also find the Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.